At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Kazanaga argued that really there were multiple selves inside the human brain, each one taking control at different moments. Normally that is hidden, because the one self that is conscious constantly makes up stories to explain what all the other selves are doing. But when the connection between the two parts of the brain is cut, it can't do that. And the other parts emerge. Zanega argued that really all human beings live in a made-up dream world of stories, which give them the illusion that they are in control. to quit viewing man as a single psychological entity that in fact his psychological self is a multiple self that he has a variety of mental systems uh, existing in his brain they have emotions they have memories they have uh, incentives they have destinies and they're able to control the motor apparatus by which I mean they're able to make movements they're able to actually precipitate behaviors on the part of, of, of someone and once those actions are completed here comes this verbal system in to give an explanation and to, and to propose a theory to itself to explain why these actions were carried out. Complexity theory said that human beings were just components in vast, complex systems. Systems that they would never be able to understand. Which meant that what they thought and what they felt was irrelevant to the system. Our psychology, and now neuroscience, said that much of what went on inside people's brains was beyond their control. Which meant that the conscious bit inside the brain, the part that applies meaning to the world, was actually irrelevant. Bit by bit, the idea of the world as something that human beings could understand and change was disappearing. Human consciousness was being sidelined. I knew there was a reason in the last year why the only shows I watched were Westworld, The Sopranos, and Legion. Adam Curtis and his new documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, cements my suspicions. Let me explain. As Curtis argues in the series, the 20th century took us forever from the collective to the individual. The problem is that the concept of the individual is a mirage, a fiction we tell ourselves. No civilization can survive if we lean on the individual because it's ultimately a phantom or perhaps a mirror maze. Today's Western culture's mental collapse just proves it. There is no individual, only legion. When the truth offends, we we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. 
sooner or later that debt is paid. Jung was right when he said the individual is a swampy terrain of shadows, complexes, personas, and other psychic forces. The Gnostics were right when they declared the individual is the below of the above, an inner reflection of heavenly upper levels, archons and aeons, a microcosm of the macrocosm. The Hermeticists agreed. Even Plotinus claimed that humans were just levels of being, the inner news interacting with the outer news. One and the same, really, but distracted by Nietzsche issues. They were all right. There is no individual you or me, only Legion. I am constrained to point out that since minds are evidently being influenced, we cannot know at this moment whether our own memories are completely accurate and true. The butt slaves of the Archons have known this all along. Edward Bernays, Ernest Dichter, Joseph Goebbels, Steve Jobs, shit, fucking Madonna. They all spell cast to the parts of ourselves underneath our conscious mind to manipulate and control. Heck and heckity. I've been doing marketing for years, and even I know you never market to a person's ego, but go below to the chaotic casserole of base instincts and personality constructs. It's also no secret that studies show your brain makes up its mind up to 10 seconds before you realize it. There is no individual, only legion. And the most dangerous thing about schizophrenia You're not. the most dangerous thing is believing you don't have it that's the trick the mind killer your disease convinces you you don't have it societies across the globe will collapse in collective psychosis as they depend on the individual to move things forward for even the servants of the Archons can no longer control masses as they project, fragment, and mentally decay across social media, educational institutions, and civic networks. Duh! Hey! Duh! If you do anything wrong in your life, duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now. If I find out, you're fucking duh, finished. Should we turn back to the collective? Hell no. You see, the bad news is that there is no authentic you, but a construct to keep countless fragmentary selves in check. The good news? Well, Jung, the Gnostics, the Hermetics, and Plotinus had the good news. Simply go inward. By boldly plunging down into yourself in an inner safari, recognizing the endless and independent yous there are, you will enter a dialogue with the unconscious. Ignite a lost song of Orpheus that will reveal how to integrate Legion. This is self-knowledge or Gnosis. This is individuation and becoming undivided. This is becoming whole and accessing the divine spark within you to light up your being with all its potential and ecstasy. 
This is finding your true purpose, your bliss, your daemon or higher self. This is where you tell the right story. Don't you see? It's not about you. It's about them. But I can't go back. Don't know that you've got a choice, son. No man can walk out on his own story. If we don't all start facing this and go inward, society will perish very soon. There is no individual. You're a fiction, as culture is a fiction, as those around you are a fiction, as the history of humanity is a fiction. Time to do something about it, or as you see, things will get much worse in a time when the Archons have lost control and can only atomize a human soul and divide and conquer. We are Legion. And that's the best news I've had in a long time. I am becoming free because I know. We know. And as your pompadus of Gnosis, I, Miguel, or at least the fiction that is Miguel, will help you integrate all the yous that you are. Here at Aeon Bytenostic Radio. Sir, this is a Wendy's. Let me pull this quote from the documentary from David Graeber, who said, The ultimate, hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. So be wise, because the world needs more wisdom and make interesting mistakes, make amazing mistakes, make glorious and fantastic mistakes, break rules, leave the world more interesting for your being here, make good art. Our interview relates very much to this show's theme. Oh, you Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. Why? Our astral guest will share his inspirational journey from a fragmented being into a whole servant of Sophia. Many of you in the broken places will relate with the usual tropes of insanity, drugs, dysfunctional families, and eventual meetings with the divine. Well, I've wrestled with reality for 35 years, Doctor, and I'm happy to state I finally won out over it. That is Anon Omos, who arrives to the virtual Alexandria to discuss his book, Revelations on the Interstellar Highway 10, a metaphysical journey for the advanced religious seeker and the spiritually attuned. It's not an easy battle, that of the true seeker warrior, but at least we have some maps. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. And what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? What's so funny that God himself is dealing with his own legion? His many pieces that fell into the void and created our universe. After all, the Gnostics said that God went crazy and became us. This is our last chance before society collapses and billions collapse into more psychosis. Like God. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. 
someone who certainly talked a lot about divine madness and the reality of our multiple personality civilization is Philip K. Dick. Like Jung, the Gnostics, Hermetics, and Plotinus, Mitzaks haven't heeded Dick's warning. As Eric Davis said of Philip K. Dick in another cool documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix, a primal theme with Philip K. Dick is the tension between our social construct and how to fragment from it. And it goes into solipsism, or psychosis, and definitely paranoia. He captured the texture of our lives, like getting a lot of alerts. The contemporary world was just recreating the animus world that pre-modern people saw. His work captures that sense of profane technological animism, that aliveness that is not very trustworthy. Dick was always aware of the broken. People are broken. Technologies are broken. Cosmologies are broken. Gods are broken. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. At Aeombite, you will find the healing, certainly with the gnosis of my astral guests, including Anon Omos. I hope you enjoy my myth-making, which, like the feverish dreamscapes of the Gnostics, might seem contradictory. It's like there are many stories within me, voices from underneath my awareness, different versions of me competing to get out. Like I'm schizoid like Sophia in the stories. Ever feel that way? Ever feel you are a legion? Guess what? You are. And that's good news once you accept it. As Caitlin Johnstone wrote, The only thing keeping the world from plunging into total insanity are those few who are insane enough to doubt its sanity. Do you know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah. Ah. And shit. We still gotta deal with egregores, archons, and robots named Pandora. Extraterrestrial mind parasites and vengeful gods. The trauma of our ancestors. Parallel universes and fucking extended warranty messages. Man, it's a busy universe out there. And the journey is a bitch. But I'm glad you're here with me, for you are an eternal champion. High priests and priestesses of Hermes. And we've been fighting this war for aeons. We are Legion. But enough of my drivel from one of my versions. Let us to our interview with Anon Omos. Have you ever seen a shape in a cloud? Or a face in a knot of wood? Every few months, Jesus appears to the unsuspecting in a piece of toast. Or does he? 
Human beings are pattern-seeking animals. For thousands of years, our survival depended on being able to spot patterns in nature, to find predators hiding in the wild. And so now, centuries later, we are still looking, still searching every cloud for faces, as if our lives depend on it. So strong is our belief that a pattern must exist, that the human mind will reject the pieces that don't fit. So where the pessimist sees danger hiding behind every back, the optimist sees friendship. Which is why, when we encounter coincidence, we often see conspiracy. This is the A.M. Biden interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Anon Omos to discuss his book, Revelations on Interstellar Highway 10, a metaphysical journey for the advanced religious seeker and the spiritually attuned. Anon, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I think it's overdue. I know I got your book a while back, and I'm glad we finally get to address it. And with us, as always and forever, and for good measure, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm here. Here I am. <laughs> I'm okay. Physically? And I'm look- yeah, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Something. At least my voice is here. Yeah. yeah. I have a feeling it's going to be an interesting interview, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Vince, do you drink coffee? I don't know if we've ever talked about that. No, I gave it up. Really? Yeah, I gave it up. I used to drink a couple of cups in the morning, but nope, no more coffee. Wow. So now you just, uh, by pure willpower, you keep yourself going. Yeah. Fizzy water is about the only thing I drink. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Willpower. Oh, and a little bit of uh, vitamin B12 sometimes. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Awesome. Well, Adnan, again, you and I have definitely interacted in many platforms for a while and had so many great conversations along with other members of different groups. So, uh, as I mentioned, it's good to be able to uh, showcase your book, Revelations on Interstellar Highway 10. So, uh, well, tell us how you came about to writing this book or a little bit about your origin story into becoming awakened a gnostic uh, full of gnosis well i think the idea of writing the book came about through a series of i would call it i guess spiritual and psychological experiences that i went through in my mid-20s and from those experiences i kind of made a, a vow to i guess myself and to god so to speak whatever whatever name or label we want to use to call that divine essence of the universe and so i've been working on this book for almost oh close to 20, 30 years on and off, but it really came to a final completion probably in the last couple of years. So I guess to good way to go would be maybe perhaps talk a little bit about my family background, some of the things that I went through growing up that led me to my so-called, what I call it, my crash and my awakening. Does that sound okay? That's how it usually is. It's not, <laughs> a, it's not a rose garden and the gods never promise you a rose garden. That's so true. That's so true. So here's a little bit of my tale. Uh, I grew up in a family of uh, my 
father was from Greece and my mom was from Canada. So as siblings and I, we were first generation Americans in, in that regards. And uh, I remember being about four or five years old and going to my Sunday Greek Orthodox church, the Sunday school, and learning about this, this guy called Jesus. You know, who, who's this guy, Jesus, Jesus Christ? What's he all about? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I tended to take maybe some of the literature a little bit too literal as a, as a four or five-year-old child because I felt like, okay, I guess this guy is who we're to strive to be. This is what we're supposed to become as we uh, mature and, and grow. So in doing so, I would have to say that it kind of went into my subconscious in a sense, almost to the extent that I would say that my archetype is the, I would say the Messiah, the Redeemer, the, the Savior type of uh, consciousness or archetype. So as life went on, you get involved in the uh, family dynamics. Um, there was certainly some dysfunctionality going on in my family growing up. Uh, I guess I went through abandonment a few times in various methods, shapes, and forms. I recall my, when I was about two years old, my mother had to go back to the hospital for a while. And uh, I stopped talking, apparently. I withdrew into myself and had to go through some speech therapy classes uh, to come out of it. My friends used to have to interpret what I was saying to their parents. Like, I was really rather gibberish what I was saying. And uh, then later on, my uh, older sister decided to have a bit of an affair with a high school teacher. So she was about 17 or 18 at the time, and, and the teacher was about 28 years old. So she was kind of ostracized from the family. Now, this would have been like the early... 1970s. So that type of experimentation was going on. But she agreed they were going to get married. He was married at the time. He was going through a divorce. And my dad basically said, look, okay, if you truly love each other, then at least spend a year apart from each other. So that was the agreement. So my sister was basically kind of, I'd say, kicked out of the house or made her own choice to do so. The problem was my parents never told me what happened. Um, I basically thought she, she had died. Oh, I, was probably about, I was probably about seven years old at the time. And my sister, she would have been about, oh, she's 11 years older than I am. So about, yeah, 17 or 18. So that was a, my second encounter with what one could call abandonment. Also, this person who was very involved in my life was, was gone. And my older brother, who's about nine years older than I am, he kind of decided to take full advantage of that situation. Uh, I think my parents and my my mom and dad were so focused on dealing with my older sister that they didn't really, they couldn't focus on what my brother was doing as well. Um, he was getting into drugs. He was a uh, kind of a, a, a bit of a adrenaline junkie, I, I would say. But my, uh, my brother was rather abusive. I, I would say my older sister, and my older brother, both have undiagnosed narcissistic personality disorder for those uh, who are well aware of what that involves. But I would say my older sister's narcissism was more on the side of love, uh, very protective. And my older brother's narcissism was more on the side of uh, hatred, uh, anger, uh, less protective. Now, it's, it's interesting because I remember I probably smoked marijuana the first time when I was seven years old. Because my uh, brother used to think it was funny to get little kids stoned. And uh, he kind of got well into the, the drug scene. 
I mean, that was the, the 1970s. That's what was going on. So here I was like a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid. Uh, a pot was all around, uh, cocaine. I remember seeing bags of pills left and right. And uh, there was many times I was offered marijuana. A lot of times I said no. Sometimes I did say yes, because of course you, these are your elders. You feel that they're the ones who are guiding you in life and you, you want to please them. Uh, so I was actually offered cocaine on several occasions as a kid. And uh, I never actually did it. I do remember I put a little bit on my gum, same way I guess a police officer would test it for purity just to see what it tasted like. And I, I do recall it had a very a chemical-like flavor to it. And I kind of remember to myself, uh, you know, who'd want to snort this stuff up their nose? That was, that was the uh, scientist inside of me saying that. But I was off of cocaine on several, several occasions. Uh, I remember smoking hash probably when I was nine or 10 years old. I held a brick of hash in my hand. I still remember the golden elephant that was stamped into that uh, brick of hash. So needless to say, drugs were all around me growing up from the influence of, of my older brother. Now, something inside of me was telling me to that, be aware of this, but resist it. Don't go down this path. I was offered a drug dealership in several times in high school. But uh, my option was I felt that I had more in life to become than just a drug dealer. I was probably the only kid taking calculus who could get any drug in 48 hours. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is going in high school, uh, nobody knew that I had this kind of dual life type of thing where I was kind of the, uh, I guess I was a bit of a motorhead. Uh, taking some advanced uh, courses because I, I felt that education was my way out of the situation. Uh, then I do recall my mom and dad fighting quite often over what they were going to do about my brother and a lot of fighting around the family, what they were going to do about my older sister. And I do have a younger sister as well. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my family I grew up with very, very much. Um, they may listen to this podcast one of these days. And I will have to deal with it when they come across it. But uh, I think it's good to talk about the truth of our lives sometimes because hopefully it can help others on, on their journey. So I remember my mom and dad were fighting quite often. And my dad started to kind of use me as his counselor. He had nobody else to talk to. So I was probably about 12, 13 at the time. And then, unfortunately, my dad died. He had a heart attack one night, and I was probably the last one in the room with him at the time. I was a 13-year-old kid, and I caught him while he, while he fell, took his last breaths. Um, at least there was somebody there with him when, when he passed away. My mom and brother came downstairs and did CPR on him, but unfortunately, to, to no avail. Needless to say, my, our lives and our situation changed drastically when that happened. Now, my brother being, you know, on, on the, he had kind of the triangle between personality, drugs, and probably mental illness to some degree. I mean, he made all the promises, how, how he's going to chip in and help out. I remember two weeks later, after my dad had died, my brother came home quite uh, stoned and incoherent, stumbling, couldn't, couldn't even talk. And uh, I had to hide him in the garage for my mom because she was in no condition to handle this and kind of nurse him back to health. Uh, I don't think he was ODing, but he was certainly uh, not with it. So I remember putting blankets on him and feeding him, kind of getting him back to, to coherency. So this is 
when you grow up with a situation where you have drugs and mental illness in the family, it can definitely cause different dynamics to, to occur. So I saw my family kind of falling apart and having that Messiah, Savior, Redeemer type of archetype at my subconscious level, I felt that I had to kind of save my family to keep them together, to keep things going. Uh, there were some other deaths in the family within that, that time period. I was a teen. When I was a teenager, my maternal grandfather passed away. My uncle passed away. and uh, My paternal grandfather also passed away. So I kind of lost the, the notion of what happiness is supposed to be about. It's like that bluebird of happiness takes off. It, it, it's gone. And going to my adult life, I had to kind of learn again how, how to be happy, how, how to feel content. And I probably went into a bit of a depression through those years to get through it. I, I do remember listening to a lot of Pink Floyd and uh, especially the song Comfortably Numb. I, I could definitely relate because I oh, was, yeah. yeah. And you, it I, seems that you had a lot of codependency. Oh, and absolutely. Codependents yeah. always want to save the world. And until we realized, no, that's not possible. We can't save anybody. <laughs> you got that right. We can only save ourselves. And that's no, hard no, no, not even ourselves. <laughs> so those were some of the uh, difficult times of growing up. Uh, some of the better times, I, I do remember having gone to uh, Greece a, a couple times. Uh, once, probably was about five or five or six years old, and another time when I was twelve or thirteen. But I remember my dad would teach me about mythology, the Greek mythology. Now I thought he was just teaching me it from a cultural standpoint. Um, I often wonder now that he made a might have been a partial Hellenic religion for him. I, I'm really not sure, but he definitely seemed to teach me more about mythology than he did about the Greek Orthodox Church. But a fun, funny little story. I remember we were in Greece one time and we went to a stream that was alluded to be where Achilles was dipped by his mother. It was a kind of symbolic representation of the river Styx. So I said, hmm, this stream has some magical powers in it. I brought my canteen with me. I filled it up with the water from that stream. And when we got back to the hotel room, I poured it all over my body. And I made sure that I got both ankles. I wasn't taking any chances. So just that idea that it was the combination, okay, there's the Greek mythology on one standpoint, and then there's the uh, Greek Orthodox Church on the other. So there's a little bit of duality in how I was looking at things and approaching religion and mythology at the time. So I I remember one time going back to to my older brother a little bit, and he's he's still alive to this day, believe it or not, and uh, he's on his third family right now. Uh, He might be going on to a who knows? Maybe I'll go on a fourth family before uh, he, he leaves this world. But uh, I've learned to, I guess, emotionally distance myself from certain members of my family. And it's more just, just to survive and, and, and to uh, keep my own, own sanity type of thing. Because one doesn't realize how much dysfunctionality you're growing up with until you're out of it and you have to look back um, in retrospect. Now, I know so many other people have so much, so much worse dysfunctionality going on in their family. Um, I always had food on the table, always had a roof on my head. You know, I think those people coming from war-torn environments or, or severe physical or, or psychological sexual abuse, too, I mean, that's some tough stuff to deal with. But it is possible to heal. We just have to do the work on ourselves. So I remember one time my uh, brother wanted me to get stoned with him, and I, I didn't want to. I just, something inside me saying, no, not this time. 
he wanted me to ride on the back of his motorcycle to go down to, to the trails and uh, you know, smoke a bowl with him or join or whatever. And I said, uh, no, I, I didn't want to. And you know, he called me all sorts of vulgar names, all, all different parts of the female and male sexual anatomy because I wouldn't go with him. So he came back from going down there and getting stoned and he was limping. And I remember the motorcycle was busted up. And the first thing he said to me is, this is your fault. I wouldn't have crashed if you were with me, you know, playing those mind games. And I probably would have been dead to tell you the truth, but something, a voice inside my head said, do not go. With uh, do not go. So I went, went to high school, went to college. I was actually rather religious uh, inside my, my own, own mind. I attended a, a Greek Orthodox church growing up. Uh, later on, I was in a Methodist Sunday school and youth group. And in my high school years, I was actually in a Catholic youth group, even though I wasn't Catholic, but they, they welcomed everybody. There were some people who were, who were even Jewish in it. It was very open and, and diverse, uh, very, very progressive. Uh, I had some, it was a good way to, uh, it was kind of a safe area to get, get out of the house when we used to go there and hang out with the group. And then I, I went off to college. I decided, I was debating whether to go into art or engineering. Uh, I decided to go into engineering because I felt that artists don't eat and I like to eat. But I did discover that sometimes even engineers go without food. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No matter what your job is, sometimes you will find yourself unemployed or, or, or out there looking for something different, which is a, a normal path and direction in life that we have to go sometimes to, to change. So after college, uh, a lot of repressed anger, uh, my emotions were waking up essentially. I had a lot of anger against my mother. Uh, some of it was what we called, I guess, a little bit emotional abuse. Uh, some of the mind games that she would play to get me to kind of look after and take care of the house uh, growing up. And uh, I was starting to, to feel again. I, I was waking up, so to speak. So my mom and I were not getting along very well when I got out of college, uh, a, lot, a lot of arguments, a lot of fighting, but I was caught in this duality where it's almost like in the same sentence, she would say, I want you out of the house, but I need you here to take care of things. And of course, I'm a young adult at the time. I'm just trying to get on with my life. And I don't think I ever actually mourned for the death of my, my father, because I think I, you know, I turned into the adult. It became that codependent survival mode. So all these emotions were waking up. Um, my identity of who I was, I never got to kind of figure out who I was as a teenager because I was kind of going in this codependent situation, trying to just survive or trying to keep things going. And during that awakening, so many things were happening at once. Uh, I would almost say it's almost like a, I guess, a psychological breakdown, just the mind being overwhelmed. And, uh, I crashed pretty hard. I mean, I can remember reaching a point of only seeing black and white. Uh, food lost all flavor. I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. There for about four weeks. And uh, for anyone out there who's been in a psychiatric hospital, as you know, sometimes it can be a very good experience. Sometimes it can be a very terrifying experience. Uh, definitely had a combination of both. There were a lot of people there who were trying to help me. 
uh, some people there, not, not so much. But I do remember being in the, in the psychiatric hospital where they put you in all sorts of drugs to, tr to try and uh, snap you out of whatever you're going into. And that, that, just, that just made things worse. A uh, funny little antidote. I remember I had talking to another per patient in the hospital and I was saying, so what are you in here for? And he said, uh, I have a Pink Floyd song stuck in my head that keeps on over and over again. I, I, can't, I can't turn them off. And I said to him, wow, at least you got a good band, good lyrics, good song, and free music. <laughs> I, don't think he was that I don't think he was that amused by that comment. But, uh, <laughs> well, what was the song? Did you ever find out? Uh, <laughs> no, been, no. I, one of these days are some of the more uh, less musical or more harsh songs. <laughs> yeah, it comes something good. I mean, the music of Pink Floyd, but I think definitely ahead of its time. I mean, it can put you in that translate state, kind of really sends you into your uh, subconscious sometimes to think and think reflect on things, almost a translate, translate state. So finally, in the psychiatric hospital, not, nothing was working. Um, part of my crash was almost the feeling that I had failed in a mission to stop the Gulf War, as ludicrous as that may sound. And it was almost like I was feeling the pain of the Gulf War that was going on starting at that time. And then I think of Jung and his... Uh, feelings with uh, the coming wars, how there's a sense that he was sensing things as well. I don't know if there's any similarity there, but I remember it was the idea that I had failed. I had failed. I had failed. That was just one of the many things that, that were going on in my head at the time. So none of the medications were work. Finally, they resorted to electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Now, it's, this probably would have been about fall of 1990. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not like the old 1940s, 1950s days when they zap the person is shaking all over the place. But it's, uh, they, they do essentially give your brain a little bit of a shock. But what they do is they give you some anesthesia so that you don't convulse or have muscle spasms or anything during it. And they gave me about six ECT treatments. But I will say this much. After the first ECT treatment, it worked. I, I knew I was feeling better. I knew my, my, my mind was kind of coming back a little bit. So I would have to say that it worked. As, as horrid that, that may sound, after shock treatment, it did work. So I got out of the psychiatric hospital and I was seeing a counselor. They had me on Clonopin at the time, which is a mood stabilizer. Oh, I'm familiar with that one. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and I, I hate to be on drugs, Miguel. I just, uh, I, I, I naturally had my bias against, against them. And I just, I just wanted to get my own psyche back, get my, get my own mind back. I think before going into the psychiatric hospital that I was actually on lithium, but that was, I wasn't taking it the way I was supposed to. I probably was taking way under dosing it because I just, I couldn't tell what day or time it was at, at times. So I started seeing a counselor and they had me on clonopin. It's probably counseling about a year, a year and a half. Uh, it, 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 it definitely helped. It kind of got me on, on the right track to reflect on things. I do remember I asked the counselor one time, you know, what, what's the diagnosis, doc? And she said, uh, I'm putting down affective schizophrenic disorder. And I asked her, I said, am I schizophrenic or schizophrenia? And she said, no, but I have to put something down for the insurance code. Now, I don't know if she's saying that to be nice or not, but, uh, it's, it's just interesting how 
those with schizophrenia or affected schizophrenic disorder have certain similar encounters, certain similar uh, uh, things that they go through. So after the, uh, psych- my time in the psychiatric hospital, I said, everything was happening within, within that year, two-year two period. I was crashing from all these suppressed emotions and everything going on during my childhood. And uh, I was waking up at the same time. So I mentioned that archetype savior redeemer uh, so, uh, within my subconscious that I never got a chance to explore when in high school. It's something that happened after college. But what it was, it was almost like my subconscious was saying that I am the Messiah. My conscious was saying, no way, that's impossible. That's blasphemy. What type of ego do you have? So my subconscious and my conscious were at battle with each other, going back and forth, back and forth. I remember going through a series of a, almost a split mind where I wouldn't say that I was hearing, hearing voices, but it was like one part of my mind was saying, why save humanity? They're not worth it. Why even bother? The other half of my mind was saying, yes, they are. It, they may not be perfect, but they're worthy. So I went through a series of these trials like that in, in my head. Uh, one was saying, who's going to believe that you're going through this? Nobody's going to believe you. Why even bother? They're not going to believe what you have to say. They're not going to believe the knowledge that you may have. Humanity doesn't listen to Gnosis. They're too stubborn. All this stuff, all these internal battles were going on in, in my mind. And this was actually probably a few months after I was out of the uh, psychiatric hospital. It was a spiritual battle in a sense. Now the DSM manual, it's a diagnostic in this, I forget what they call it, the diagnostic uh, manual, I forget what that center word is that begins with S, but DSM I know is it's abbreviation. You know, it would say this is a mental illness, a classification in the, in the schizophrenia disorder. Religion would say these are possessions. It kind of depends how you look at it. Now, one of the problems with that internal battle is I had taken general psychology, abnormal psychology, and comparative psychology in college. So I knew darn well what was going on in my head. That's what made the battle even more difficult to deal with and process. So finally, I reached a point, I, th- I think, I would say I had a vision. I can't say if this vision happened before or after my stay in the psychiatric hospital. But I, I would say it was at least a year afterwards. I'm pretty sure it was a year after in the psychiatric hospital. So that would have been close to fall of 1991. Finally, I was, I was at my wit's end. I, I had all these internal battles going on, internal archons or demons, whatever you want to call it, back and forth. And I just, I, there was nothing left in my psyche. It's almost like if my archetype from the age of four or five years old had been that redeemer, savior, messiah type of complex. And here my conscience is saying, no, that's impossible. That's not who you are. Wipe that out of you. It's almost like my whole persona of what I had been for the past 20, 25 years was gone. It was being wiped out. There's nothing left of me. And at that point, I prayed to God. I said, God, give me a sign. I said, give me a sign. This isn't all madness. That, that this isn't just my mind doing this, that it's not a childhood fantasy, that this isn't just something that I'm making up in my own head. 
I, I, I prayed pretty heavily for that. I just said, I just want a sign. I didn't say what the sign had to be. Just give me, give me some sort of sign. You know, it could have been a priest showing up at, at, at the door or anything. Within about two weeks of that heavy, heavy praying, again, I was at the most rock bottom I could be. I woke up one night, and this is the vision that I had. I woke up one night about 2 a.m. that there was with a feeling that there was a strong presence in my room. I opened my eyes and I looked up. And I almost saw like a fracture in reality, almost like there was a split in the ceiling and a cloud-like shimmering essence started to come out of it, a little bit of light. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, great, now I'm freaking hallucinating. What next? I was very aware of what was going on at the time. And from that cloud-like shimmering essence, the first thing I started seeing was almost like two serpentine or snake-like tails coming out of it. I definitely saw two. Uh, they were probably parallel and adjacent to each other, kind of a blackish grayish color, and they were definitely moving. Now, I don't know if it was two separate tails or if it was just one single tail that was uh, just intertwined, spiraling back and forth, but I definitely saw two. Or maybe legs. legs. <laughs> could, could have been legs. Uh. Could have easily been legs. And I remember thinking, oh, great. Why am I seeing snake things? This makes absolutely no sense what's going on here. Now, I couldn't tell if both, both this, the snake-like tails or legs were coming into this reality or if one was coming in or one was coming out. Now, my mind interpreted it as snake-like. Uh, a scientist might say it was the phase shifting of something coming out from a, a higher reality into our reality, almost like it had to go through certain phases to, to enter. And I, I was terrified. I said, oh, my gosh, I'm freaking hallucinating. What, what's going on here? And then I saw this grayish face start to form. It kind of looked like a old man hobgoblin lion, like from the side, a little, little scruffy, I remember. And it, it was horrifying to look at. It, it was terrifying. And this lion-like hobgoblin face came, started coming at me. And I remember feeling just terror inside. What's going on here? And I had a memory of watching a National Geographic episode where a lion was chasing a baboon across the savannah. Now, baboons and lions are somewhat bitter enemies. And I remember in that show that I saw, the baboon was at the very end of its run. It run out of energy, it had no more energy left. And the lion was about to get it and jump, jump on it and kill it. At the very last moment, the baboon turned around and confronted the lion and roared at it. The lion kind of stopped, I remember, in shock. But needless to say, I think the lion still ate the baboon in the end afterwards. Boo. The lion's a demiurge and the baboon's a symbol of Hermes. Oh, well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the well, material most world. <laughs> most likely. So I remember thinking, okay, I got nothing to lose here. Whatever this thing is, it's coming at me. It was almost like howling at me. So what I did is I lowered my fear and fright and I just went, I lowered my ego. I projected love at it. I said, okay, you're coming to destroy me. You definitely are much more powerful than I am. The only thing I can give you is love. So I threw love at it. The face almost dissolved. 
And all of a sudden, there was this like luminous, mask-like porcelain face looking at me. Very different than the one I'd seen before. Uh, it was elegance. It was, it was sheer beauty. And I remember there were silk-like strands flowing behind it. Uh, it could have been wing-like, could have been silk-like. I couldn't really tell. It looked like it had pupilless eyes. Uh, it was kind of a bright, luminous face. I mean, sheer beauty and elegance. I, I, I remember I was almost going to turn my head away. This, this, I shouldn't be looking at this. This, this is not of this realm. And it just stared at me. For about, we were staring at each other for about five, maybe five to ten seconds at least. And boy, that seemed like an eternity. Then all of a sudden, the face smiled at me. And it, it, was, it was a smile of grace, understanding, acceptance. And all of a sudden, I felt this wave of love come from whatever that face entity was back at me. The face started to back up in reverse going into the portal from which it came. And I felt myself rising out of my body with it in kind of a state of ecstatic, and I won't say erotic bliss. It, it was both. Not erotic in the physical sense, but erotic in the sense that you're uniting with another being through the bond of love type of thing. And then I fell back asleep. I woke up the next morning thinking, what the heck just happened? Well, whatever it was, it saved me. Because it told me that there is some divine essence to the universe. There is something much greater in this world going on than meets the eye. I never told my counselor about this vision. Because I didn't trust myself. I was thinking, oh, great. I'm going to start hallucinating now. There's going to be more of these. I waited another month. Did not have a hallucination. Waited more years. Did not have another hallucination. I've never had a hallucination or vision like that again in my life. It was no dream. There was something occurring. I wish I had a camera in my room that I could film it to see if was I just seeing this or was this actually going on in the sense of reality. Uh, the first person I ever told about this experience was my wife back in 2005, approximately uh, before we got married. I just thought that she should know about some of my experiences. And uh, the ironic thing is she's, she's Roman Catholic. And she's more accepted of my experiences than I am. I, I'm that stubborn engineer, logical mind, remember? So uh, it, it's a tough time. It takes a tough time for me to process this information. So, okay, so what was that thing that, that I countered? Was it the demerge? If I'm pronouncing that correctly, I, I'm, I have a great talent for butchering languages. So if I mispronounce something, please let me know. No, that's fine. And, and then I started uh, working this book, writing this book. And I kept being led in certain directions on, on different things. Sometimes I don't think I was actually writing the book. I would say I was more like describing it. I did not even know what Gnosticism was until 2020. I did not know what the demerge was until 2020. I did not know what a Braxis was until 2020. And then I started seeing these images online on Ian Byte Gnostic Radio. I'm like, holy Toledo. That looks so much like what I saw. So it seems like other people out there have had these similar experiences. Now, I finally started reading about Carl Jung and his experiences in 2020 as well. So much of my book, I'd say 90% of my book was written before I even knew of Gnosticism, Carl Jung, some of those experiences. 
talk about mandalas in my book. I didn't know Carl Jung was into them. So the very strong synchronicity is going on here. So I think the way I finally reached, I will call it partial individuation, that word individuation that, that, that Jung uh, stresses that we should all strive to achieve. I accepted the fact that I'm not the Messiah. Maybe I'm a Messiah and maybe I'm not a Messiah. And I'm okay with either way. And I'm using the word a there as an article, meaning there could be more than one Messiah in this world this, this time. There could be tens out there. There could be hundreds, there could be thousands, there could be hundreds of thousands, there could be millions of Messiahs waking up now. Because think about that. Think how wonderful this world would be if so many people started waking up to what's really going on out there to achieve a little bit of that, that Christ consciousness in themselves. You and Vance could be on, on that path now too. I mean, who knows? And so, you know, if, if, I, if I am a Messiah in this lifetime, great. If I'm not, I'm okay with that. Maybe I'll be one in a future lifetime or one way down the road. But isn't that all of our journey is to try and reach that Christ-like state that Jesus himself is so trying to teach us how to become and, and how, how to be that way? I'm not perfect. I, I, I have my evils and my flaws, and I'm perfectly aware of that. But I think what, what gets me, what really blows my mind is that vision that I had, because it just, I cannot explain it in any other way. It, it defies logic. There was no internet back then. You can, you can, this was like 1990. The internet was in its infancy. Um, I was in a four-year engineering curriculum. Never read a book on Gnosticism. Uh, was starting to read the Bible rather more intensely during those times before my crash and awakening. Let me stop you there. Do you think uh, the face might have been Sophia? That's what I'm getting. Seems like demiurgic and then softly Sophia. I, I could certainly say that. I'm, I'm trying not. To, I'm trying to let the audience decide what that face was or was not. I, I don't want to. My own opinions. Yeah, very, very well could have been Sophia herself, an emanation of God uh, tr trying to come to this world to tell me that I'm not entirely mad, that there's something more profound going on here. Yeah, and it's interesting, when we talk in different platforms, you have a very positive view of the world. I think you have, you have hope for not, well, I think all of us here are very positive about the transformative powers of the divine if we so choose to wake up and uh, take the journey, but the journey's hard. Even if you start waking up, the challenges are going to continue in this world or the next, but you're pretty positive about even about society. Uh, you, you feel the empire can be redeemed. I do. I do. And, and maybe that's because a certain, I'd say insight that I, I'll say Sophia has kind of revealed. And I, I don't know if our definition of religion and Sophia and spiritual experiences, it's we don't really know what's going on in those spiritual realms. We, we have to interpret it based on our human understanding. I mean, that's why there's so many different religions. Oh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, so many different cults out there. There, there could be, Sophia could be a creature in it of herself, in of herself, or there could be millions of Sophias out there waiting to, to bond, to, to form that divine uh, marriage with a lot of humans out there. You know, some people will say, well, could that have been a demon? Well, I don't. A demon cannot project what it doesn't have. A demon cannot project love. 
I mean, even Jesus talks about that in the Bible, that uh, was a house divided falls upon itself. Right. And yeah, demons can quote scripture and they know Jesus, but you're right. The archons are still mechanical. And with that uh, porcelain-like face to project in love, that, that, was, that was something very divine and uh, loving and good in, in my sense, very benevolent. So I, do, I, see, I see a very positive path for humanity. Um, it's, it's based on probabilities. It, nothing's absolute out there. I don't believe that fate is written in stone. I think it's a probability for all of us. And, and we do have the ability to steer our destiny or fate in the direction we want it to go. Uh, I mentioned this in my book. I, I view fate as almost being in a river of rapids. And there's boulders and stones that we have to avoid. Now, fate has it. We're going to go down that river no matter what. But self-determination is the fact that we can steer that rudder around the rocks as we go down that river. So it's a combination of both. There's probabilities of where we're going to end up in our destiny, but we are in control of that rudder. The question is if humanity wants it. As a wise man once said, people don't want to be awake or cured. They simply want relief from the pain they have, and they get used to the pain. We all did. Uh, because again, it takes, uh, to grow, we have to get out of our comfort zone and in certain ways be challenged, uh, in ways that our old ways will die. Like, uh, happened to you. There was a certain period of ego death and a new person was transformed through it. It's a very inspirational story. And I think the audience will definitely get a lot out of it. And we should still talk about it. what about you, Vance? Uh, what do you think, or do you have a question for Anon? Well, my first thought was it reminded me of uh, my interactions with my guide, spiritual contact, Alethea, because it was kind of pure love, overwhelming, that I have never experienced before or after. And in my case, it was an evolution. You know, it was a spirit guide to begin with. Actually, when I was a small kid, it was it was like a childhood friend that was reassuring when I was having social troubles, you know, in school and so forth. So I think for everyone, these relationships are personal and we assign names or whatever as per our own life path and experience. So um I thought I thought it was a great story, you know, kind of a story of redemption. And yeah, and far, far as saviors go, you know, like we don't have to save all of humanity if we can we can save anyone we come across if they're open to it just by projecting our love and help and friendship to them. So I don't have any problem at all with the idea of being a savior. It's just a matter of who your audience is, I guess. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a very safe environment, I feel, and that's why I'm going to reveal a lot more than I've ever said uh, to anybody else. I'm glad you did. Now, one of the things, I guess, like I think of the story of, of Saul turning into Paul in, in the Bible. You know, he, he, was, he was evil, bad, uh, torturing the Christians, and then he, I guess he saw the light or got the lightning strike and uh, turned the other way. Um. I, I came from the opposite direction. Uh, in other words, I was too virtuous. And what happened is I went through that switching of the opposites. Uh, what's that word, Vance? You, you mentioned and and then um, the, there's a word for it when the an opposite 
when you switch ops, it's because one end of the pole has been too far the, ex the extreme. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it comes to me, I'll, I'll say it later on. Uh, but I went through that where it's almost too virtuous. I need to go the other way. Oh, and then Chiodromia. And on Chiodromia, is that what they call it? The switching of the opposites? And then Chiodromia. Yeah, I didn't know that word, so it wasn't for me. One of us needs to rush to Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually my... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> but but that was happening. because I, I was too virtuous as a teenager in early 20s, and I started to switch the other way around. I hated, hated being the good guy. And uh, I hate, hated being... I didn't like being angry at my mother. I mean, does anyone really want to be anger, have anger against the woman that brought us into this world? And I was able to forgive my family, and they had to forgive me for some things that I did too as well. But I remember I watched my mom. She would get books out and read on a little bit on self-improvement. And it, it clicked in my head that, wow, she never had the tools herself growing up to, to deal with some of this stuff. And just the mere fact that she was willing to take a look at herself, that, that, you know, that, that helped me a lot to be able to forgive her for, for some of this stuff. And uh, I'm on very good terms with my mom these days. And I, and I do love my family very much. I just, like I said, I just have to be mostly careful not to get drawn in some of the dynamics sometimes. Yeah, it's not easy. I think what Ed Ram Dass uh, famously said, if you uh, want to know if you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. They are able to hit all the buttons and all the trauma and the complexes come up. So always a good challenge uh, to find out. And and Anand, you said you just came to the Gnostics in 2020. Uh, what uh, has Gnosticism showed you or crystallized or maybe even what's maybe in some ways obfuscate. Well, I don't I would consider myself a Gnostic as of yet. I'm, I'm working towards that point. I, I still like to call myself a generic seeker. Uh, I just feel I love all the different aspects of the various religions and some of the different paths. I, I believe there's multiple ways to access the Godhead. And when I speak of the Godhead, I use it in the, in the non-personal sense. But there's multiple paths to uh, finding God. Uh, I feel it's a really a journey inward and then it becomes an expression outward we may i think we we access god by going inward and i think i think that's what jesus has said as well to, to, to truly understand things and then once we find that that divine light it's really our i guess i would say duty spiritual duty to try and improve the world in whatever way we can you know, whatever small amount that we can to make the world a little bit better place. Now, I, I know the Gnostics view that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the earth is kind of a, a prison, so to speak. Yeah, some did, yeah. And, and, they yeah. all did. It wasn't home. And, you know, I guess if that's the case, hey, if this is a prison, let's make the best of it. You know? let's, <laughs> turn into a, let's turn it into a playground. Because if we uh, start having fun and we start making a playground, that's really at the warden. It's pretty pissed off. They're not going to like it if we're enjoying ourselves down here, are they? Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, a prison is still a prison. Not being free is not being free. I think that's the ultimate goal of the Gnostic and really any seeker. Freedom from the bondage of the material world, our emotions, uh, all the things that are temporal. So, and you know, how you see the world depends on each person's experience, and there are gradients of it. I like um, in your book how you describe God. You say, quote, God is the supreme collective cosmic consciousness 
or the supreme universal mind, the oversoul of all creation. And then you have a quote that made me laugh. Um, you, your own quote, you say, God spoke to me late last night. He told me that he's an atheist with insomnia and a sense of humor. Like, that's a good description. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know what writings that I put forth as an author and what writings I put forth as a scriber of a, you say, Sophia or, or that divine mind. And I've, I've kind of named that, that, that entity. And I, I feel it's still, it's still around me. Uh, it doesn't reveal itself in the visual sense, thank goodness, because I think it would scare my pants off again. But uh, I, I do feel a presence sometimes when, I, when writing or thinking. That, that's, a, that's wisdom coming to us. And I've, I've named her Zoa. You have Zoe, Z-O-E, right. which was, a, I think, a, another name for Sophia or her daughter. And I refer to this uh, entity as Zoa, Z-O-A, maybe a, a granddaughter of Sophia. And I throw the O and the A in there for a little bit of the Omega and the Alpha characters. Oh, I like that. Very cool. Yeah, I think Zoe is the Greek name for Eve in the Septuagint, because obviously Eve is Hava, which means life. So the Greek translation called her Zoe in a lot of places. But then the Gnostics obviously took it as sort of another hypostasis of Sophia on this world. And um one thing you talk about in your book, Anon, and that is a question of God being fallible. Yes. A big question. Big question. Again, to say that God is fallible, we have to define God. How do we define God? I mean, th that's been the saga of the ages. Everybody seems to have a different perspective of what is God and what is not God. Yeah, how do you define perfection or error? I mean, these are very subjective terms, even perfection. But I, I think of a, a child that gets born in the this world with, say, uh, some physical uh, abnormalities. I mean, that's, I see that as, as, as a failure of, of God in a sense. Like, why would you let some soul enter a, a, a young creature that is going to have some suffering so early in, in its years, uh, some uh, difficulties? And that's why I feel as humans, it's up to us to kind of account for or correct God's mistakes. And, and that's what we do through our, our medicine and our, our practices. We, we try and improve the human condition wherever we can, whatever life or God throws at us. And I think by looking at God as being infallible, it makes us accept ourselves a little bit. And I don't think it's, I think it's God's infallible by choice. In other words, I can better relate to my creations if I'm infallible like them. Because if God can be anything, hey, God can be perfect or God can be infallible, right? Why not? Makes sense. And uh, what about the idea of evil spirits or demons or archons or demiurge? I mean, like you said, when you had your experience, there was a harshness that you you saw. And it, for me, it reminded me of, uh, I think, in the late 60s, Philip K. Dick, before his 2374 experience, he had that face-in-the-sky experience where the clouds parted and he saw this steely metal face just uh you know uh not grinning but uh, grimacing at him from the heavens and he said oh my god this is the demiurge or long before you really started uh studying gnosticism but that 
that's what it reminded me. But what is your idea on perhaps evil spirits or ghosts and all that, uh, the negative aspects of the universe in a metaphysical sense? I admit, I, I'm jury's still out on that. I'm still trying to process that because I'm not so sure the archons are necessarily evil or that's how we approach them. I see the archons as kind of warning us sometimes too, but, it, but it's how we listen to them that can cause the, the problems. I mean, I think of, for example, suppose you, you go to work every day, you have a horrible boss you deal with, you come home, your mind's still going on about, oh, what the boss did to me, he did this, he did that, I, I want to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Well, those, those are the archons in our mind telling us that. And, and we start to get obsessed on that. We become like a broken needle going over and over. And then we have to say, wait a second, you're right, Archon. That is going on. But you don't need to keep telling me that. I, I get it. Back off for a little while. And I think the Archons listen and they back off a little bit. Um, that's just my perspective. I, I'm not sh- I wouldn't call it absolute. It's something I'm still kind of looking into. Because, for example, I, I think of that visual encounter that I had with that horrid face coming at me and the idea of projecting love onto it. Now, I don't know if that was a test and I passed it or if it was trying to teach me and train me to do that. So the question becomes, okay, was I being tormented or was I being trained? I, I, I don't know. It depends how one looks at it. I, I'm still kind of investigating looking into that. Yeah, I flunked my test when it came uh, because many years ago, I was uh, experimenting with trying to um, do out-of-body experience. And I was in my bedroom and I had the door closed and it was dark and I was, you know, concentrating on doing that. And all of a sudden I had this huge lion type creature. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Forbidden Planet, the creature from the id. It was kind of looked like that. It was huge. And it like took up the whole wall on the other side of the room. And it, I don't know if I've ever been as frightened. It was so scary. And that was the last time I tried out of body. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't think to send love to it or anything. I was just too terrified. <laughs> well, if it happened again, try that. Send love. See what happens. You're like yeah, Scooby-Doo and the gang just running in place. Right. Yeah. And that must be too. I guess that's the other question is, and on, and again, Philip K. Dick, Carl Jung, Paul of Tarsus struggle with this, but you have this great one experience and then it's not like you can get it every day to sort of reinforce your idea that there's a divine world and all that matters is contact with higher planes because that's what we're really here for to expand ourselves and become divine like and reach our potential. But then, yeah, you all you have is one experience you got to base yourself on. And that's, that's hard because I'm sure, I'm sure. The mind plays tricks, right? I'll tell you, once was enough. <laughs> you don't want it again. <laughs> I don't need it again. I mean, I, I, as again, I have a logical mind. I, I'm trained as an engineer, so logic is very much part of my uh, mental functions and everything. And when you go through something like that, you're just like, okay, this defies logic. And, I'm, and yet I have to apply logic to accept it. It's such dualities. But I'm sure your rational mind could be telling you, like Philip K. Dick, his rational mind was always saying, Dude, uh, leave it. You could have been delusional. This could have all been a hallucination. Even with Dick. And he had proof. He had prophetic uh, visions. Uh, he was, he predicted like his son getting sick and he was able to, he would go somewhere and it's something that he'd written about that came true like, uh, blow by blow. But he's still part of him was always like, maybe I'm just crazy. Imagine if we quiet that voice in ourselves that says that we are crazy and we accept it 
that's that's how we'll probably start to learn to use those tools in a productive manner. I, I think it's our conscious mind denying that, that that it's real. That's what's causing all I think all the problems. We start accepting that yeah, there is something going on here. Right. I don't think we view ourselves as being so crazy all the time that this is the stuff does go on. I mean, wasn't it a uh, what Hermes said to Asclepius or that people will start to forget about these gods and, and, and these things. And exactly. maybe we're, we're trying mm-hmm. to re- reawaken, bring some of the stuff back within our, within our society and culture. I have a saying that applies to this, which is it's all in your head, including your head. <laughs> good saying. <laughs> that is good. But, th- but then you think about some of these experiences that other people have had the same ones. So that means there's some commonality. As Carl Jung even pointed out, there's some commonality going on within the psyche of the human consciousness. Tell us where people can find your book, Revelations on Interstellar Highway 10. And why 10? Why not 51? Uh, uh, that's, that, uh, that's a mystery for those who read it to figure it out for themselves. I'm not going to give that one away. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it shouldn't be a mystery where to find your book, though. No, no. Uh, my book, very easy. The website is called asteroxrising.com. And there'll be various links to get there. It is available as a paperback on Amazon, although it's hard to find through Amazon. You actually have to type in uh, the title and put paperback in it. But it's available as an ebook on several different sites. It's on Apple Books, Barnes Noble, and Amazon as well. So if you just go to the website, asteroxrising.com, there will be a, a link there to get you to whichever format you'd like to uh, purchase the book in. Awesome. And uh, any future plans or projects? Uh, I think I'm going to focus on the hermetic principles, bringing it into a material reality, try and work on those physics projects of seeing if we can get around uh, Newton's third law of motion, even just partially. So that's where my focus is going to be for now. Uh, Definitely enjoy doing other side projects, but hey, we are stuck in this realm of time. We can only do so much in a given day. That is true. That is true. Well, awesome. Well, we are at the end of the interview. A very nice conversation. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for keeping us company on this Interstellar Highway 10. Yeah, I got a flat tire on Interstellar Highway 10. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been great. I I fixed the tire and I'm on my way. So uh, it's been great um, uh, talking to you, Anand. And um, it's been great hearing your story. And uh, good luck with the book. Thank you, Miguel Vance. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having this platform for uh, authors such as myself to uh, tell their story. No, thank you very much for uh, joining the show, giving us your time and sharing a very inspirational story that uh, hopefully, uh, well, I'm sure it will inspire others and help others to go on their own road of awakening. So thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye now. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our inspirational and instructive interview with Anon Omos. Oh, the places you'll go, as Dr. Seuss said, even if the journey is often hard. In our second part, Anon will of course go deeper on his personal journey, sharing what rituals and practices he uses today to stay grounded. He'll grant us his views on what is enlightenment. We'll get more into esoteric symbolism and the concept of duality. 
Anon will let us know if he thinks there are parallels between Gnosticism and Greek Orthodoxy, as well as relate about some of the mysticism in the Quran. We'll have a group talk about the current state of the USA and UFOs, and much more. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full interstellar highway. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic or Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, where many past guests hang out there and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. The Finding Hermes program is live, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, sex magic, entheogens, astral ascents, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. Lastly, I am now on Odyssey and Rockfin, moving away from the larger digital domains and going to places that don't censor and accept crypto. Check me out there. You can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it. Including integrating that legion within you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself. Your true self. Here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.